I first um, heard a man named Charles Finney in the late 1700s. He spoke on repentance, and someone recorded it. I shouldn't say recorded it on a tape, recorded it by writing what he spoke. And that teaching on repentance is very key. If you go into the internet, put in Charles Finney, and the word repentance, it's going to come up. Now, he was a lawyer, so that, doesn't, that means he's not the easiest guy to understand. But you'll get a lot out of it. He was a revivalist at that time. And when he came into a place like Chicago, Rochester, the city was so changed after a few weeks of his preaching. The courts ran out of work. The jails started to become empty. Business people were saved and turned around. That's revival. When, when, when God changes a city to righteousness, that's revival. If revival doesn't involve repentance and a turning back to God, it's not revival. I don't care what to label it. It's not revival. Because um, Finney defined what revival is. The Welsh revival in 1904 defines what revival was. The Hebrides revival of the 1940s defines it. And all those cases talk about people being smitten by the Holy Spirit, falling down on the street, repenting of their sins, laying on the floor of their houses, repenting of their sins. And many of them had declared they would never, ever enter a church. God moved on them through revival. And I pray that to happen again. And I've, I've even been a bit selfish about it. And I've said, Lord, I would love to have it in my lifetime. I would love to see people, me first if necessary, but broken before God because He exposes their sin. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict men of sin. And if we're praying for revival, that's what we're praying for, the Holy Spirit to come and convict men of sin. doesn't matter whether they're Christians. There's lots of Christians that need to repent. The state of the church right now indicates that very clearly because many churches are, are dead in the water, as it were, because there's things in the church never been dealt with. There's people outside of the church that need to repent. My job right now is to teach you about repentance so you understand it. The title of this teaching is True and False Repentance. I am not copying Finney's teaching. I've never been comfortable in doing that. When I read somebody's teaching or hear it, I try to live it out, work at it myself, until the Lord starts to release it in my own heart. And I want to give it to you from that aspect. I want to tell you what false repentance is, first of all. It basically is being sorry because of the consequences that you're living in. And you see, Second Corinthians 7.10 says, calls it a worldly sorrow, which brings death. In other words, there's a type of sorrow for your sin that doesn't save you from the pit, from hell. doesn't release your conscience. It doesn't get rid of anything. 
except to get rid of some tears, probably. It's like the guy that robs the bank. He's enjoying the money until he gets caught, and he's really sorry. You understand? Hebrews 12, 16 talks about Esau. Esau was Jacob's brother. Esau was the eldest, so he was supposed to inherit the family fortune from Isaac. And so this is what happened. Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance right as the oldest son, afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. So I hope you know the story of, of Jacob and Esau. But Jacob deceived him into selling the oldest brother's Esau's inheritance. Just for a meal. It's weird because the next day, you see, the inheritance was gone, the meal was gone, Esau had nothing to show for. So he's deeply sorry for it. He, and he, and he's, he even sought the blessing with tears. Now, I grew up thinking if somebody's praying and crying, they're really repenting of the right way. But Esau wasn't. He was only concerned about what he had lost. He wasn't concerned that he had probably grieved his father Isaac by giving something that was so precious in, in the culture of that time. He gave that away for a meal. Basically a bowl of bean stew of some kind. And so his repentance amounted to nothing. So that's false repentance. He wasn't living for eternity. He was living for the present. Please understand our whole culture is aimed of getting you to live for the moment. Buy the car, do this, be cool, have these clothes. To live for the moment. Those things in themselves are may not be wrong. But we need to see over there at the end of my life is an eternal life that God wants to save me from. And in order for me to get there, I need to make a decision that I want to repent of any sin the right way so that God can forgive me. Esau wasn't forgiven. I have a couple of more here. Um, in 1 Samuel 15, 1-26, a story of Saul. He was not supposed to offer a sacrifice. Samuel said, I will come and do that. Offer the sacrifice so we can defeat the Philistines who were attacking Israel. But Samuel did, or, pardon me, Saul got nervous because Samuel didn't show up on schedule. And so he did it himself. And, and so, later, Saul blew it again. Samuel said, now when the Philistines attack, you make sure that everything that's living is, has to be dead because they constantly were an enemy and a torment to Israel. And God says, it's time to bring judgment on. So he said to Samuel, you tell Saul, everything, animals, people, have to die. 
Well, Saul didn't do that. He kept the king. He kept the best of the animals, using the excuse, we want the animals for sacrifice. But Samuel confronted him. And Samuel said, you didn't obey the Lord. Saul said, yes, I did obey the Lord. See, the army is defeated. Samuel said, you were supposed to put to death everything. Well, Saul said, it was, it was the people that talked me into keeping the king and keeping some of the animals. Samuel hit him again. He says, no, you sinned. So finally Paul admitted, he said, or Saul admitted, he said, okay, I have sinned. But please honor me before the elders and before the people. Okay, so he made two mistakes. First of all, he said the people made me do it. In other words, I've committed a sin, but somebody else made me do it. That's justification, and God doesn't listen to that. He needed to be honest and say, yes, I have sinned. But he wasn't. He blamed something else. You can blame other people for your sin. You can blame circumstances for your sin. You can blame the weather. You can blame the government. doesn't matter. Each of us are responsible for our own sin regardless. This is the way I explain it. Somebody sins against you. You sin back to get even. God says you have to repent of what you did. You say, well, that person did this. God would say, it doesn't matter. You repent of your reaction. I'll look after this. The Bible says you'll look after those who mistreat us. And so it is with repentance to this day. I have to stop blaming people. Stop blaming my situation. Somebody might say, well, if you know how I was treated as a child, or if you know how I was treated at work, or what the government did to me, or what the church did to me, God says, stop making excuses. Stop justifying what you did. Repent of your sin. And then Saul also refused to humble himself. Humbling, when it comes to sin, is something like this. Going to the people that you know, people that you love, it can be your, your house group, your church, fellowship, or whatever it might be, and just say to them, I want to confess the sin before you today. I want to confess it. Now, it isn't that you want them to know about what you did. As much as confession is a humbling experience. Anybody recognize that? It's a humbling experience. And whenever I confess my sin to other people, you don't have, I don't think you have to go into detail, but just to confess it to other people, you're humbling yourself. And when you humble yourself, God says, that's where my grace is for you. Grace means He wants to give you the gift of forgiveness, even though you don't deserve it. So grace means getting what we don't deserve. So, when I humble myself, God's grace is there. But see, Saul didn't want to humble himself. I look at it this way. Pride is when I close myself up. I don't want anybody to see what I'm really like inside. I generally put on a religious out thing, but I'm, I don't want you to see inside. That's where the Pharisees were. They dressed the right way. They had their scriptures everything that was supposed to do. But inside, Jesus said, you're a bunch of dead bones. 
bunch of whitewashed tombs. But see, humility is when I open myself up to people I love and I can trust. I can say, I want you to see me just the way God sees me. And see, Saul refused to do that. Refused to humble himself. So if there's no humility, there's no grace. As a matter of fact, it's in 1 Peter and in James, and it's taken from the Old Testament, so there's three times in Scripture. It says, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So basically, if I'm closed up and I don't want to humble myself, God's opposed to me, Satan's out trying to kill me, those are the two heavy ones in the universe. And we're, we're, we need to humble ourselves so we get God on our side to oppose the enemy who's trying to kill us. There were two thieves on the cross in Luke 23. The first thief mocked Jesus and said, Why don't you save yourself and save us to get us off this cross? There was no indication he was sorry for the sin that put him there. He says, get us off there. I want to talk about true repentance, what it means. It basically means to change one's mind. Spiritually, if you're going this way into sin, doing those things that you know separate you from God. Repent, true repentance is when I make a 180 degree turn and go that way towards righteousness, towards God. That's literally what the word repentance means. Now, King David is a good example of true repentance. King David, um, when he um, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet came and confronted him, uh, David didn't blame the woman. He could have said, well, she shouldn't have been out there bathing in the first place in broad daylight. Or he could have blamed his wives. He had ten concubines and at least eight wives. And so we don't know where they were that evening when he was lonely. Maybe it was bingo night at the local church or something, but they weren't there. And so he could have said to Nathan the prophet, well, it's Bathsheba's fault. Or he could have said, it's my wife's fault or my concubine's fault. Or he could have said, well, I've really worked hard in the kingdom and I was tired and I feel I just needed a bit of something to relax me. And so, when, when, when David confessed his sin, he simply said, when Nathan confronted him, he simply said, I have sinned. Didn't blame anybody. Didn't make excuses. He took full responsibility for what he did. Then there's the prodigal son in Luke 15. It's another good example. The prodigal son, trust you know the story, had left home, uh, wasted all his inheritance which he'd asked for and he got wasted all that. Now he's looking after a Gentile's pig, which is the lowest, most menial job that a Jew could get because pigs are the dirtiest animals that they have. And he basically said to himself one day, my dad's, my dad's servants eat better than I do. And then he said something very important. I'm going to get up, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to tell my dad, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. And two verses later, 
He went home, and that's exactly what he did. He said, Dad, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Now, we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. But now let's include the second thief that was on the cross. Remember, the first thief just said, Why don't you save us? The second thief said, Have you no fear of God? We are getting what we deserve. This man doesn't deserve it, but we are getting what we deserve. He confessed. You understand there was an admission. We have sinned. We're being crucified for that sin. And um, the first thief, God never answered him. The second thief, God said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. So that's the difference between a false repentance and a true repentance. And somewhere along the line, if you haven't realized that, the difference, you need to make it a point and go with the Lord somewhere and say, I'm going to deal with this. And there's much more that I want to share with you to help you in that. I want to talk about repentance as a first step. The Bible is clear in saying, if you want to come to the Lord, if you've gone away from the Lord, you want to return to the Lord, whatever your situation the first step is repentance. Matthew 3, this is John the Baptist. The first word that's recorded of John the Baptist's teaching is the word of repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And then Jesus in Mark chapter 1, the first word that's recorded of his message is repent and believe. In Luke 24, Jesus preached and said There's, there needs to be repentance and forgiveness of sins in his message. In Acts chapter 2, when the crowd said to Peter, what do we have to do to be saved after Pentecost had broken open and the Holy Spirit fell? What was the first word that came out of Peter's mouth? Repent and be baptized. Acts 20, Paul's teaching, repentance and have faith and he preached it to both Jew and Gentile. There's times when Jesus sent the disciples out and he gave them two instructions. He said, preach repentance and cast out demons. That was his message to his disciples as they went out to preach the gospel. In Hebrews 6, the first two verses, those two verses contain what the writer calls the basic principles of the elementary teaching some translations call What were those elementary teachings? I'm not going to go into any of them except the first one, repentance. You understand there needs to be an attitude of repentance, not just for the sinner, but even for people that would call themselves Christians, because there's teaching out there that I've heard that once you've repented, you never have to again. The Bible doesn't agree with that teaching, shown you very clearly. Now, if, you, if you're still doubting your mind, then go to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Read about the seven churches. These are churches. These are people who've been saved, filled with the Spirit, functioning in the gifts of the Spirit. Out of the seven churches, five of them had sinned. And the Lord's word to them through John that they had to repent. That's the way back. 
want to get back, if the church wants to get back, if Christians want to get back into the fullness of God's love and His joy, repentance is the way back. We have found tremendous gaps in people understanding some of the basic teachings of the New Testament. Kingdom of Heaven was one of them. Water baptism is one. They think it's just a, some kind of a ritual you do. Far from that. We're going to teach later on that. But you see, we need to recognize that sometimes people don't understand basic stuff because they've never really repented of their sin. So therefore, God is waiting for that repentance, that true repentance, in order to start revealing things of His kingdom to them. Let's go to point four. Why we need to re repent. We cannot turn to God without repentance. And Acts 20 verse 21 says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now you would say, well, those are people who are not Christians yet. Yes, you're great. You're, you're, you're right. But people who are Christians, but live a sloppy Christian life where sin is kind of just brushed off and they take it lightly and maybe joke about it, it, apply, it applies to them as well. And now where there is true repentance, there will be forgiveness of sins. So we need to repent that sins forgiven. Acts 2.38. And this is again where Peter said, when they asked him, what do we have to do? He said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you. He didn't say, for those who feel like it. He said, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then I'd like to mention Luke 7, 29 and 30. It talks there about John's baptism. John the Baptist, his baptism was a baptism of repentance. And... The scripture says, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' word, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. Let me stop there. They understood, they acknowledged God's way, that it was right, because they had been through repentance. Now, I'm not sure how John the Baptist worked it, but it looks as though people that decide that they want to deal with their sins, he would take them out in the water. And repentance, water baptism, conversion was all one thing. They stood there, it says, they confessed their sins, and then he baptized them. So what was happening, we're going to explain at a later teaching on water baptism, but there was uh, something opened in their hearts Something like a light went on. Revelation came that said, Oh, now I understand. I understand stuff. I understand that God was right. I understand He is God and so on. But let's go on with that verse. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Why? Because they had not been baptized by John. In other words, they didn't have the revelation because repentance was not part of their life. So it's important if I'm going to understand God, understand what He's saying, 
I need to be a person of repentance. It's also healing for the soul, for those who have emotional damage from rejection, hurt, abuse. Listen to the book of the prophet Hosea from Hosea chapter 6, the first three verses. He said, come, he's calling out to his people, come, let us return, which is what repentance is. Let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. I need to stop there. Because that is totally contrary to how some people see God. Let me explain it this way with a little story. A shepherd who is watching over his sheep has a young lamb that has a bit of a rebellious streak in it. And he spends more time looking for that lamb, trying to round it up, get it back into the flock, than he probably does with all the other sheep. One day, with the knowledge that he has learned, he takes the lamb, he breaks its leg on purpose. And then for the next two or three weeks, he has to carry that lamb around his neck with splints in the leg so it will heal up again. But he has to carry it because it can't walk. In that time, there's a bonding that takes place between him and that lamb. And when it's healthy enough to run on its own, it stays within the flock. And you see, that story is told so we understand that God does do things to us to bring us back to Him, to get us from that waywardness and that rebellion. So Hosea is saying, yes, He does wound us. Yes, He does tear us to pieces. You see, the tearing to pieces is almost a picture of a lamb being attacked by a, a wolf or something. In verse 2 it says, After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, He'll restore us. It's almost a prophetic word that Jesus would rise on the third day and we can rise with Him. That we may live in His presence. Verse 3, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. So Isaiah said, this is what God has to do sometimes to bring us to that point of repentance so we can be reestablished in a relationship with Him. Now let's look at the most important reason for repentance. It's simply because of who God is. Genesis 6, verse 6. This is um, at the time of Noah. And it says, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Now let me build a little bit here for you. In the beginning it says that God made man in his likeness and his image. And so, the image part is what I want to talk about. If you look those two words up in the dictionary, they're so, they're not exactly the same, but they they um, are close. So I want to use the word image as the way we're made, you know, with, we have feelings, we have um, emotions, you understand? I want to see us that way. God is made the same way. Likeness, on the other hand, has to do with character. 
But let me separate those two just enough to give us some understanding here. And you see, if somebody I love turns away from me, there's pain in there. And when someone turns away from God, there's pain in his heart. It says so. He was filled with pain. Because he's like us. He has emotions. He hurts. He can be wounded. It says he grieves over his people. He, um, he, he um, sheds tears over his people. He hurts for us. And so, my purpose for repenting is not just so that I can be forgiven and still go to heaven. My purpose for repenting is because I've hurt him. I've broken the first commandment. That one that says, love God more than anything else here. I have loved something else. I've loved my rebellion. I've loved my waywardness, whatever. But I need to say, Lord, I'm sorry. When I didn't love you first, I hurt you. There was pain in your heart because of me, and I caused it, and I'm sorry. It's like the prodigal son's father. That story is there in order to show us the heart of the father. No other reason. See, it says that the father, every day, he would go out and look away down the road to see if his son was coming. That's, that's how the, the longing in him and the desire for his son never seemed to wane. It was there all the time. And then one day, he saw away down the road, his son started walking. When he saw him, it said the father ran to him. I don't think you'll find anywhere else in Scripture where you see God's in a hurry except that one time to forgive. And see, remember the prodigal son said, I've sinned against my God in heaven and I've sinned against you, Father. And so when I sin against somebody, I've broken the second commandment by sinning against somebody. But you see, I've broken the first commandment by putting myself first instead of God, which means if God is first, other people are second. I've broken both those commandments. And I need to go to God and say, Lord, I'm sorry I've hurt you. And if there's somebody involved that I've hurt, I need to go to that person and say, I'm sorry I hurt you. You need to have clear conscience. You want to sleep good at night? Get your conscience clear. Stop eating pizza at 11 o'clock at night. That's another reason. But a clear conscience will give you good sleep. That's why babies sleep at least for two hours at a time. Psalm 70, verse 40 and 41. It said, How often they rebelled against him in the desert and grieved him. Notice the word grieve comes from hurting from a long time. And hurt, grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again, they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. Let me explain. Pain, long pain that stays there. You grieve over the, the separation, over the hurt. And if you have to put up that long enough, you start getting angry about the whole thing. I like to use just a, a story of a, a, say, a long distance runner. They're in this marathon, and somewhere down that road, they get a little pebble in their shoe. Now, to stop and take the shoe off means they might disqualify themselves, or at least lose their place in the race. And so they, they run the full race with that little pebble, they get into their heel, until they get to the finish line. The 
can imagine when they take their shoe off and get that pebble, they're going to throw it as far away as they can. But you see, every time they stepped on that pebble, it hurt again. And the more they stepped on it, the more angry they got at that little pebble until they got to the finish line. Well, see, that's the way God is. The, the longer we put off repentance, the longer we wait, the more it hurts him. And he grieves over it, and at some point gets angry and brings judgment. Then Ezekiel 6, verse 9, it says, God says of Israel, I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. And in Luke 19:41, as he, that's Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. I said, there's emotions in the heart of God. Why? Because he had performed miracles. He was trying to say to the people, the prophet to redeem you from the Roman Empire is here, but you have to repent in order for that to happen. But the Jewish people at that time said, no, the prophet said you've set us free and you're not doing it, so we're going to crucify you and wait for another one. They missed the condition. The condition was repentance. The same is true today. Both the Jewish people and the church, until we come to do obeying the Lord, moving in an attitude of repentance, we'll always have trouble. Our nation that we live in, until we return to the Lord, repent of what we've been doing over the last many years, the sins that all of us are aware of, until we repent of them, our nation is going to continue in that downward spiral until we're under worse persecution than what you're hearing about in Israel and the Middle East today. It's going to come here as well. We have to get back to the Lord. We're responsible for before the Lord as a nation, by the way, not just as an individual, but as a nation. We're responsible for our own sins as individuals, but we also need to be responsible for the nation's sins, praying that our leaders will turn back to the Lord and living the life ourselves. Then Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I am he who blocks out your transgressions for my sake, he says, and remembers your sins no more. Why do you say for my sake? Everything we do has to be, first of all, for God. Seek first his kingdom, for Matthew 3. Seek first his kingdom. And so, as I seek first the kingdom of God, obey him in what I do, that's where the freedom comes for Him to then start blessing us and uh, pouring out on us those things that we need in our life. Remember that, that verse says that all these other things will be added to you. Our, life, our society basically says, I want all the things. I don't want God. I just want all the things. And it definitely has failed us. When we seek for His will and His blessing, it's going to do better for all of us. It's good for him because he looks good in the eyes of those that need him, and so on. Now, even the prodigal son from Luke 15, you see, when he said, I'll go back to my, my um, 
I've sinned against God and I've sinned against my Father. That's exactly what he saw. I need to deal with my sin against God first and then I deal with my sin against my Father. Even Pharaoh saw that in Acts chapter 10. This isn't in your notes. Acts chapter 10. Pharaoh finally, after many, many um, disasters, drugs and all that stuff, he said to Moses, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against your God. So Pharaoh understood it. He was a heathen man. Surely we should be able to. The next section, five, is on the consequences of not repenting. I'm going to um, just touch on those. I won't spend as much time on them as maybe I'd like. But he says, because of your, in Romans 2, 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. Stop there. Paul is not talking to the world out there. Paul is talking to us, God's people, to the church. Because of your stubbornness, anybody know anybody stubborn? No. Uh, well, I looked in the mirror one day and there was one of them. God had to deal with that stubbornness in there. Most of us don't know we're stubborn until we get married and the spouse tells us, no, we don't believe it. But we are all, in a sense, stubborn. We don't like being told what to do. And whenever somebody comes and says, the Lord has shown me that your attitude towards some, somebody else is not right, we can either, either say, thank you for being concerned about my soul, or we can say, how dare you talk about the speck in my eye when you get a log in your own. And we, we bounce it off. So because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant hearts, listen to what God says you'll do. You are storing up wrath against yourself to the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, storing up wrath, that phrase means to me, God is not naturally a God of wrath. He doesn't want to be a wrathful God. However, because of my unrepentant heart, which keeps hurting him and grieving him, then wrath begins to develop. We are the ones that store up wrath in his heart. doesn't say he has wrath that he keeps in his heart. We are storing it up, and someday it says his righteous judgment will be revealed. That's not talking about the end time judgment. That's talking about things that go wrong in our life because we have refused to deal with the sin. And so God opens the door for things to happen to try to get our attention. Psalm, David, in Psalm 32, verse 3, he said, When I kept silent, he's talking about his sins, my bones wasted away. That's why we have so many testimonies of people who have physical healings after they dealt with their sins. There's a man, he's actually born here in southern Ontario, but his parents moved to Chicago. He began to be a pastor in his early years and um, brought levels of revival to the places where he was. God called him to South Africa. And when he was in South Africa, he, he developed a reputation of, of a, being able to pray to God for healing. So when he would get up in the morning, his front yard would be full of people, mostly the black people that lived there, 
waiting for him to pray for them so they could be healed. He would take them one at a time and pray for them. If they weren't healed, he would send them to another room where his wife was, and she would then ask the Lord to show her why this person wasn't healed. God would reveal a sin, and she would speak to the person, and God has shown me that there's a sin in your life. If you repent of it, you can be healed. And they record in that book that if the person repented of it and dealt with it, they were healed. If they wouldn't deal with it, they'd go home the way they came. That's how powerful repentance can be and bringing us to a place of understanding why many people are not healed. And I'm not saying it's always the situation, but many people are not healed because they haven't dealt with some of the issues of the past, mainly called sin. In Psalm 63, verse 10, God says, Yet they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. We're talking about the consequences of refusing to repent. He actually turns against us and becomes an enemy to us. Now you might say, that doesn't sound like the God I was raised to know. That's right. I didn't learn that either. It's amazing what you find out when you start reading the Bible on a regular basis. You find out stuff that says, I guess my Sunday school teacher didn't read that verse. Mine told me one time, God will answer all your prayers, every prayer he has. Then I read in Isaiah 59 and Psalm 66. God says, if there's sin in your heart, I won't even hear you when you pray. One man put it this way, our job isn't to get God to answer prayers. Our job is to get him to hear them in the first place. And so, we find out things when we read Scripture, and this is one thing that shocked me, that God actually became my enemy if I refused to deal with my sin in my life. It, to me, that scares me into saying, I'm not going to let sin sit around. I'm going to deal with it because I don't want God fighting against me. Well, James and Peter both said this. I've quoted this. God is opposed to the proud. What does that mean? It means he's opposed to us. It's like as if he puts his hand on our chest and shoves us away from him because we won't deal with that sin. I'm talking about repentance, but I might as well be talking about the importance of dealing with sin in our lives because if we don't, we put ourselves in a scary position. James 4, verse 4. If you think I'm just talking Old Testament here, here's what the New Testament says. You adulterous people, he's still talking at the church, by the way. Please understand, every letter in the New Testament, every letter after the book of Acts, Romans and everything, are all written to Christian people in the church. So James is writing, James, by the way, was the brother of Jesus. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So the Old Testament said, He becomes my enemy. New Testament says, If I don't change, I'll become His. So there's enemies. And I don't want God to be mine. I don't want me to be His. Isaiah 64, 7. There is no one who calls on your name who arouses himself to take hold of you. 
before you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. The word iniquities has to do with curses. Hosea 14, 1 and 2. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. He says, your sins have been your downfall. Let me, let me stop here. Hosea was talking to a nation that was in captivity. He said, you can blame the, the Babylonians, you can blame the Syrians, you can blame anybody. But it was your sin that got you here. Your sin has been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Notice he doesn't say take thoughts with you or take a trap with you, which is not wrong, but he wants us, the words coming out of our mouth that we are sorry before God because the enemy needs to hear that you are saying, God, I am sorry I have hurt you. Forgive me for my sin of hurting you. He said take words with you and return to the Lord Say to him, doesn't say think to him, say to him, forgive us, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. That section alone should scare us into saying, I am not going to take any chance with sin in my life. The psalmist said in 139, Psalm 139, this is something that Christians should do in a regular basis. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart, he said. I want to see every wicked way in me. Search me, O Lord. I challenge you to do that every day for the next few months. Let's develop a heart of true repentance. Session number six here. We must look on sin differently and make a choice to change our opinion towards it. I'm saying that because there's a... I don't know. I grew up with an attitude, and I suspect many Christians have it, where you do something that you know is sin, but you say, oh, it's just a small thing. I'm sure it doesn't matter. You understand? There's only one sin. Comes out of rebellion, starts in pride, where pride says, you don't have to listen to the authority. You don't have to listen to God. You can do it your way. Comes out of that, it's an independent, rebellious attitude. But basically, it's disobedience. The only sin is disobedience to God. And so, if the smallest thing is disobedience, you say, if the girl gives you too much change when you come into the grocery store, and you don't say anything, you just kind of look at it and grin inside, put it in your pocket. God says, that's stealing. Stealing. He said, yes, but it was only 20 cents. One cent of stealing is not wrong. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm just trying to say to you, we need to take sin seriously. So what do you do? You go back and say, honey, you give me 20 cents too much. Because at the end of the day, her till doesn't balance out. She has to pay that 20 cents, probably. That's not the only reason. You might say, well, the company's a huge company. Maybe they don't make her pay it. doesn't matter. It's still theft. So you might say, well, that's 
That sounds pretty picky. Well, I'm using funny sounds because I want to I want to keep it in a place where you realize the smallest disobedience um, grieves the Lord. If if I had a little my, one of my little boys who raised four of them, so if one of them had gone into my dresser and and stolen twenty cents off my dresser, that would hurt. If he said to me, "Daddy, can I have twenty cents?" Wouldn't have hurt. But he, if he takes them, that's what stealing is. You see, and so that's what affects the father. If you want him to be your father, start treating him like a father. And if you've never had a father that treated you right, ask God to become your father, so you know how to respond to him as a father. This is not a relationship of rules and regulations and pickiness. This is a relationship where if I love somebody deeply, I won't steal 20 cents from them. Number B, we must ask the Lord to give us understanding as to why God hates sin. When God came into the Garden of Eden, says he used to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. He comes in one night, and they're not there. You know the paintings. They're over standing behind a shrub because they don't have any clothes on. And you say, God says, where are you? And they said, well, we had to cover ourselves because we're naked. And they said, how did you know you were naked? That's, I love little children that don't understand that yet. My one of my boys had a, a little boy and that little girl two years apart. And when they were something like two and four, the little girl had been trained very clearly that you never um, let your brother see you in your underwear. And she understood that. So one day she was taking a shower, and her little brother did something. I don't, I don't know what. So she pops out and starts chasing through the house, starts naked. To her, that was all right. As long as he didn't see her in her, see her, in her, in her underwear, he understood. But that's the innocence that Adam and Eve were in. There was an innocence there that we don't understand. And um, what happened that they all of a sudden understood something was wrong is because the fellowship of, as a result of righteousness had been broken because of sin, and now all of a sudden they saw everything different. Instead of seeing the kingdom of God, all of a sudden from the kingdom of this world, they came, became as aliens to this God that came along. And that's why God had to deal with them the way he did. He hates sin because it separates us from the people that he created and loved. Number C, we must accept the fact that every sin, regardless of how small in our eyes, deserves punishment. Then Joel 2, chapters, or pardon me, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now, this whole thing about fasting is important. It says in Isaiah 58, 6, it breaks the bonds of wickedness. It tells us here about... Um, Weeping, and whenever God said to the children of Israel they, that they were to come before Him weeping, and now it says in um, in James, in James chapter four, draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He'll exalt you. So Old Testament, New Testament. God is saying, I want you to weep before a man. And now, weeping isn't because God makes you weep. Weeping is because you make a choice to show God and to show the demonic realm that you are sorry for your sin, and you literally take it upon yourself to start weeping. You might say, that sounds weird. It isn't weird. You can make yourself laugh when you want to. might not sound very genuine, but you can. So you can make yourself weep. And it's like saying, God, I want to show you how sorry I am that I've hurt you. Just a quick story. Um, back a number of years ago in our ministry, after we're done praying for things in the ministry and stuff like that, I said, well, we have, we have some time now. Let's um, just ask the Lord if, he, if there's anything He'd like us to pray about. That's what, that's what intercessors do. They generally say, Lord, what do you want us to pray about? So we asked the Lord, what would you like? And the lady said, the name of the church came to her mind. She said it. Well, I said, she, she didn't know anything about the church. I said, well, I do, and I happen to know right now they're going through a very heavy time in their church. A lot of turmoil. So I said to them, we're going to make it down the floor. We're going to weep for that church. Whatever it is, maybe we're weeping over the sin or weeping over the attacks or whatever it is. I didn't know, but I said, we're going to weep for that church. And so we get down the floor, and I said to the Lord, we're going to pray over that church, Lord. And then we just open our mouths and start weeping. Start crying like a baby that just got his toe caught in the door or something. Now, you might say that sounds fleshly to me. Well, it certainly was. We're doing it in the flesh. Sure. Some of you that are from farm backgrounds, you know what it means to prime the pump. You have to put a little bit of water in to get the, the valve down there wet so it starts drawing up the water. In a sense, that's what we're doing. But I would say 20, 30 seconds into that, the Holy Spirit broke in that room and everybody was weeping deeply on behalf of our church. That's what God's saying to me. I encourage people to do that in repentance. Say, Lord, I'm so angry at this sin. I keep hurting you. I keep hurting others. Lord, I want to weep before you for you to change me so I don't do it again. Because in Luke 7, it said, when the woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. What was she weeping about? We know she was a, 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 an immoral woman. It was Mary Magdalene, who we'll get to know later on in scriptures. And you see, she was weeping over her sin because she knew she had hurt the Father with her sin. Let's go to section 7. What produces repentance? First of all, I say it's a gift from God. Romans 2, 4 says God's kindness leads us to repentance. I believe that means that God has been so kind to us, and yet we move into sin for some reason. Then we remember his kindness and we want to get back there. So it leads us to repentance. Maybe it means something different to you, but that's what it means to me. 
John 6:44 says, "No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him." Now, some people say, "Well, I don't have to do anything; God's going to draw me." No, I believe we're saying it's like the psalmist, "Search me, O Lord, search my heart." And you see, God then says, "I hear that prayer. I'm going to draw you to myself." So. It, it, it starts in heaven, and yet we have to ask for it to come. And I'm going to show that to you in a minute. Psalm 80, verse 3 says, O God, restore us and cause thy face to shine upon us, and we'll be saved. Now, he commands us, on the other hand, to repent. Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, and his message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He didn't say, Now, the you're going to have this funny feeling of God dealing with you. Now, as I repent, and as I ask God to search my heart, I believe at that point, God then releases what I talked about first, the, the re- spirit of repentance, some people call it. A desire to get self-right with God. So we work together with the Lord as a gift, and then He told us to seek, search for it. He actually commands us. Then point number eight says, Repentance should be natural. Jeremiah 8, verse 7, it says, Even the stork in the sky knows their seasons, and the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. Now, there's a whole passage here. I won't take time to read it. It's about natural things, the way, the way birds and animals migrate. And do. He says, Look at nature. The birds know enough to the ducks and again, they know enough to fly south. Robins know enough to fly south when the cold weather comes. The elk up way up north, they know enough to come down out of the mountains into the valleys for the grass. They can dig through the snow and get it. Like these animals all know what to do. But he said, my people don't know enough to go and repent when there's sin in their life. But in verse nine, or session nine, it says, the blessing of deep repentance, seconds, Corinthians 7, 10, 11. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What a earnestness. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What alarm. What longing. What concern. What readiness to see justice done. You understand all the characteristic traits that God wants to build in us because we're people of repentance. Acts 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you. We've mentioned that verse before, but again, it's one of the blessings for forgiveness of our sins. Isaiah 30, this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest, that rest could be interpreted trust, in repentance and trust is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Hallelujah. We got that on a plaque hanging in our bathroom upstairs. Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live on a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The word contrite means remorse, repentance, guilty, and so on. I want you to picture this God, high and lifted up, way and beyond anything He's created in splendor, in holiness, 
love and patience. As a matter of fact, he's, his patience and love is so much greater than any human being. That's why he's referred to as holy. He's set apart as different because he loves so much greater, his patience is much longer, etc., etc. And this awesome God up there that, that has every right to just destroy us at any moment, to cancel out everything about creation, this God up there humbled himself and came down and lived with us. That's why I need to be a person of repentance. Because if he's down here living with us for a while in Jesus and now in the Holy Spirit, how much more should we be conscious all the time of making sure my soul is clean before him? Jesus said we will sin. But he said if you repent, I'll forgive you. And so repentance should be, for every true Christian, a way of life. When we meet Tuesday night in our staff, we sing for a while, visit for a while first and sing, then we come together and say, Lord, is there anything that we need to repent of and in front of each other, which is confession, anything, Lord? And we've been doing that for many years, and we're not going to stop doing it because it has produced much fruit. Much fruit. Father, you told us to repent. And Lord, I pray that what I've said from your word, from your heart, I pray that you will instill in each person listening to this that repentance is not an option. There is no plan B. Repentance is what you're calling for in order to restore relationship, in order to relieve you of the pain of our disobedience. We thank you, my Father, that out of the bounty of your forgiveness, you've totally forgiven. As, as far as the east is from the west, you said, so our sins will be gone. Into the deepest sea they'll be cast. You say you remember them no more. All because we had a heart of repentance. Sorrow because we hurt you. So, Father, thank you so much. Thank you for sending your Son, who, if he hadn't come and hadn't died, None of this stuff would be right. So in the name of Jesus, we're so grateful. Amen. Please visit our website at jwmi.ca to find out about more information of our ministry.